you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 13. This is our, I guess, our 13th week in the book of Acts. We're working our way through this book, kind of section by section, trying to, to look at the individual stories in light of the big story. About 600 years before Jesus was born, there was a hunched-over man with a long beard who lived in a little village in the Middle East, um, in Israel, under the shadow of Mount Tabor. His name was Habakkuk, and you may recall Habakkuk. We looked at his uh, book uh, in 2020. Habakkuk was a lonely man. Habakkuk was a man who had been rejected by his friends. Habakkuk was a man, you can say, I think, who wore his heart on his sleeve. He was a guy you never had to worry about what he was thinking. Habakkuk was a prophet of God, which means that God would say to Habakkuk, I want you to go say this to these people, and I want you to go say that to those people, and that was what Habakkuk would do. And sometimes it was a very encouraging word, but not always. Sometimes it was actually a devastating word from the Lord. And we know that God told Habakkuk to tell the people of Judah that because of their rebellion, because of their wickedness, because of their violence against one another, God was going to utterly destroy their city, that people. Homes would be wrecked, leveled, their, their, their possessions would be stolen, properties looted. All of these terrible things would happen until it was, there was nothing left but utter ruin. But, God said to Habakkuk, I'm actually going to restore my people. I'm going to restore my people in a way that they can't even imagine. It's more glorious more uh, mysterious, more beautiful than anything they could even imagine. In fact, if I were to tell you, God says, all the things that I'm going to do in this restoration project, you wouldn't even believe it. But God doesn't say how He's going to bring about peace and hope and renewal. He doesn't say how. He doesn't even really say when. He leaves a lot of questions unanswered. And this is, of course, is what God does for us today. We know the scriptures tell us that for those who are in Christ, He's working out all things for our good, for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose, but He still doesn't give us a timeline. He doesn't tell us how. He leaves a lot of questions unanswered. And the beautiful thing about the scriptures, you know, you, you read the Bible, you see is that God is patient with us as we complain and as we search and as we sort of stumble around in darkness and, and we, we don't know what's in store, God shows compassion for impatient waiters, impatient people like me. God shows compassion. And He knows that sometimes, sometimes it may seem like God has abandoned us. And sometimes it may appear as though He's nowhere to be found. But we know that He has something glorious in store for his own people. And this is what God would say to Habakkuk, but for again, for hundreds of years, he wouldn't say how this was going to take place. We're in Acts 13, some 30 or 630 plus years after God's uh, work with Habakkuk, and God will finally reveal through the apostle Paul what he was talking about to Habakkuk. In fact, Paul will actually quote Habakkuk in the section that we're in uh, this morning. So God is going to provide an answer through the Apostle Paul. The mystery of how he will bring about his glorious salvation will be revealed. 
And in this sermon that we're going to look at this morning by the Apostle Paul, again, he will quote Habakkuk 1 as a way of saying, this is what God had in store all along. So the situation, this is, this is Acts 13 is 52 verses, and I'm not going to read all of them. Most of it is Paul's sermon, and then he'll, it'll be a follow-up the next week, the following Sabbath. Um, but let me just tell you kind of what's going on, and then we'll jump into the text. The situation at Antioch, we're told, was that this is a place that was rich with gifted folks. There were prophets and teachers in the church there, believers who devoted themselves to prayer and fasting and the teaching of Scripture. And we've seen after, so Acts 1 through 12, uh, we have the, the, the main focus, the main hub is Jerusalem, and Peter is kind of the main protagonist. And now from Acts 13 on, most of the work will happen either in Antioch or from Antioch. And here we're in Antioch. We're told that there's, that there's a group there, uh, again, gifted by the Holy Spirit, and from that group of gifted people, the Holy Spirit will call out two people, Paul and Barnabas, who were already doing the work of ministry. They've been active in the church. They've been engaged in ministry for at least a year. They're recognized as servants in the church. And this, by the way, is what God does when He calls someone to the role of an elder, to be a church planter, to be a pastor or leader in the church. He doesn't call people who have been completely inactive. He says, hey, I want you to start doing something for me. He calls those who have been active in serving and leading and engaging God's people. And then he says, I want to make you a planter. I want to make you a leader. I want to make you an elder. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach writes, those sent are qualified to plant new works on the basis of their previous contributions. In other words, they who have shown themselves faithful are then called by God to do more. Such was the case with Paul and Barnabas. They're selected by the Spirit of God to go and lead this new ministry. So uh, jump with me, if you would, down to verse 13 of chapter 13. And we'll start by reading verses 13 through 25. Here reads the word of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went out from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, God gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years, and after that God gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose? Who do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, 
the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy to untie. So Acts, as we've seen, is the, it really tells the story of the birth and the expansion of the church. How God would tell of His, spread His salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, you know, by faith alone in Christ alone, to the different nations, the ethne, the people, the, the other tribes and, and languages, and how that church would extend and expand throughout the Macedonian world. And here we have Paul's first missionary journey, the first of at least three. From Paphos, Paul, Barnabas, and a guy by the name of John Mark, and maybe a couple of others, would sail south to Perga and Pamphylia, which is about a 100-mile trip. And when they get there, John Mark, who's also called Mark in other places, he decides to leave and go back to Jerusalem. Now this, as we're going to find out in a couple of chapters, uh, this really offended Paul. This really bothered Paul. Uh, well, Paul and Barnabas go to Perga on the Sabbath. They go into the synagogue where Paul preaches one of his longest sermons in Acts. That's what we're going to be looking at. What I just read was a portion of that. And Paul's sermon really has three points, and I'm going to let Paul's points kind of be our points this morning. I'll give you a point, each point, then I'll explain it. So here's, here's our first point this morning, which Paul will clearly elucidate. The Scriptures are all about Jesus, the one to be preached, trusted, and praised. Now, think for a moment about how this went down. Paul goes in this new area. Well, when you go to a new city, I know some of you travel for a living, um, or maybe you travel a lot for vacation. When you go to a new, new city, what's, what are some of the things you look for? I mean, what do you Google to find? Maybe you, you look for a restaurant. I want to know what's the best seafood or the best steak restaurant or the best place to eat. Maybe, maybe you look for entertainment. You realize you're going to be there and maybe you're without your spouse or your family. You think, how am I going to entertain myself during this time? Uh, maybe you look for historic sites. Are there anything, are there any places that I should visit that I can learn about? Well, when Paul and Barnabas went to a new city, the first place they went was the synagogue. And that's because, a variety of reasons, we, one, we know that Paul was, he, he himself was called to be a, an apostle to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And so Paul and Barnabas, they would go into a place, they would find a synagogue, which was the, which was the, the place of religious activity. This is the place where the Israel's God was worshipped. This is a place where there were very devoted people, but they didn't know Jesus. In fact, not only did they not know Jesus, they had actually rejected him. And so Paul and Barnabas go to this place, and they go into the synagogue, as was their custom, and, and surely they're hoping that they have an opportunity to speak. Now, they don't know if they'll get an opportunity, but that's their desire. And as usual, the scroll of the prophet was read, and uh, perhaps in this case it was the, the scroll, it was Samuel's scroll. And the stories they heard were of King David's heroics. And maybe as the rabbi explained the text, he gave a very well-meaning, uh, a very well-meaning homily, a well-meaning talk about how we too can be courageous like David, how if we obey the law in certain ways, we can become men after God's own heart, and we too can face the giants in our lives. And Paul's there, and you know we know Paul is a bit of a cantankerous kind, and so he's there, and he's sort of shifting in his seats and seat, and he's just waiting. Am I going to get an opportunity to say something? Am I going to get an opportunity finally uh, to speak? 
And he's sitting there, and I have to believe he was thinking, that's not how you read the Hebrew Scriptures, that's, which is all they had. That's not how you read the Bible. It's not to get us to look at David, to become more like David. It's not to get us to, to emulate these so-called heroes of the faith, but to look at this Messiah from the line of David who would finish our faith. So he's sitting there, and if you've ever been in a situation where you're talking to somebody and you don't know if you're ever going to get a chance to interject. And if you say something, the first thing they do is they just carry on with their story. They're not really listening. Paul's sitting there. He's thinking, okay, am I going to get a chance to say anything? And then incredibly, he gets an opportunity. The rabbi uh, sends a message and says, brothers, do you have a word of encouragement? And Paul proceeds to walk these Jews and God-fearing Gentiles through the history, Israel's history in order to show them that all of this is pointing to Jesus, the promised Messiah. In verse 17, he reminds them of their enslavement in Egypt and how God saw them and remembered them. In verse 18, they're wandering in the desert. In verse 19, the period of the judges. Verse 21, uh, the time of the kings, and which brought, then he brought their attention to David in verse 22, only to show them that David was a king who would point to and foreshadow the true King Jesus. Now you think, Okay, that first point's kind of obvious. The whole Bible's about Jesus. Well, it's really not that obvious. And what I mean by that is, if you were to go to many churches, I don't know what the percentage is. I have no idea. If I were to pull a number from the air, I would say it's probably 90%. If you were to go in many churches, you would leave there, you'd, you'd, you'd hear about what you can do to become a better person, maybe some steps for moral improvement, uh, how to be a better spouse, how to, how to be a better neighbor, how to be a better father, how to be a better whatever. But it would be much focus on what we're supposed to be doing and hardly any focus at all on what Christ has done for us. And Paul wants to remind these folks, he would not remind him because they didn't know anyway. He wants to let these folks know that you don't really understand the Bible. You don't really know what it's all about. Um, these were, now you think about this term, the Pharisee. If you, and you would never, you would never do this because you're a really nice person and, and you don't ever criticize anybody else. But if you were to do that, if you were to call somebody else a Pharisee, that is a negative thing, isn't it? That's a pejorative word. What you're saying is you're all religion, you're all externals, but you're missing the heart. Well, the Pharisees in that day, I mean, the problem was not, it wasn't as though they were insincere. I mean, they were very sincere. It wasn't as though they didn't want to honor God. They just were missing. They were missing the whole point of the Bible. They knew the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, backwards and forward. They could recite huge passages by memory at any moment. And they were earnestly trying to follow God and to teach other people to follow God. But listen to what Jesus says to them in John 5. He says, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you possess eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What Jesus says to them, and I'm not trying to intentionally ruffle any feathers here, but what Jesus says to them is, life is not in the book. Life is in the man of the book, the one to whom the whole book points. I think one of the things it would be good to ask, um, 
when we're reading the Bible is what is our goal? What is our goal in reading the Bible? Is it to check off a list? You know, check something off our list? Is it to make sure that we're keeping on schedule? Is it to keep up with our friend or spouse or whoever is reading along? What are we actually hoping to achieve? I don't think we ask that question enough when we approach the Scriptures. If we're just looking for some nugget of insight, you know, some uh, encouraging word on how to live, we'll actually grow cold and dry spiritually. But if we read the Bible to see Jesus, to learn about His salvation, to discover His love and His ongoing work for His people, there's power in that. There's joy in that. That's invigorating. There was a pastor in this little uh, church in West London. Um, London, if if you've ever been there, you know it's made up of kind of burrows and flats. And I've never been to London one time when it didn't rain. Every time I've been there, it's rained the whole time. But there's a pastor that has nothing to do with anything except my own bitterness, I guess. I want to get out and explore, but I haven't been able to. But there's a, there's a pastor in this little village in West London. He was at that same church for 51 years. Now, that's a long time. That's a very, very long time to be at the same church. And one, in one of his last years, this was like the second, his second to last year, there was a, a lady who came up to him at the end of his sermon and said, Are you ever going to dry up? Are you ever going to run out of things to say? Now, that sounds kind of mean-spirited, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds kind of mean. It's kind of like one of those, those backhanded compliments. You know, you get any of those lately? I had someone say to me recently, I bet you were really athletic when you were younger. And now, that sounds kind of nice, but what he's really saying is, you're old and unathletic now. Or I'll never forget when someone came up to me and said, oh, you're all four of your kids. They have those beautiful big eyes like your wife. But your eyes, and they just kind of stopped. Well, they're going to say, your wife has these big, beautiful eyes, you have the real beady eyes. Um, they're trying to say something nice, but sometimes people do that. And here's this woman who comes up to this guy who's been a pastor for 51 years and said, are you ever going to dry up? It sounds, again, it sounds mean, but what she was saying was, how do you, I mean, how do you not get tired of preaching week after week? This uh, 74-year-old preacher uh, was not put off by the question at all. In fact, he said that he said that he what's what's empowered him and motivated him is he still finds the Bible thrilling because in ways he is still discovering the Bible points to Jesus and his sinless life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and his ongoing work for his people. Genesis to Revelation, 66 mirrors held up by the Spirit of God to reveal to us Jesus and His majesty. Last Sunday, there was a young lady who attended our church for the first time. And afterward, she, she uh, and her family moved from central Florida to Huntsville. And afterward, and they came from a Presbyterian background. Afterward, she said she, she loved it. She was so encouraged by the music worship, which she said just really uh, spoke to her and engaged her at the soul level. Um, she felt really received by the people around her that engaged her. But one thing that she said that really stood out is she said, I thought going to a Baptist church, I'd just be given a bunch of rules of things to do and not do, but I was actually told about Jesus. And she said, when I left, I was so encouraged by that. Uh, John Newton was writing a note to encourage his Christian friend who was struggling in the faith, and 
really in a really in a dark period, frankly, uh, a low period, a period of depression, and and just couldn't. He, he just was finding the Bible unhelpful. He just couldn't go to the Bible. And here's what Newton wrote to his friend: to view him, Jesus, by faith as living, dying, reigning, interceding, and governing for us, will furnish us with such views, prospects, motives, and encouragements as will enable us to endure any cross, to overcome all opposition, to withstand temptation, and to run in the way of His commandments with an enlarged heart. This is what, what, what Paul, in this sermon, in the synagogue, wants these Jews and God-fearing people to be, by which I mean very, very religious, pious people, is to know we must see Jesus as the hero of the Bible. Now, in verses 26 through 37, I'm going to read that. Paul continues with his sermon, and he gets really bold. He recites to them the ways that they rejected Jesus because, verse 27, they didn't understand the Scriptures and that they pointed to Christ. They didn't actually understand the Scriptures that they gathered to read every Sabbath. Paul cites three Old Testament passages, Psalm 2, Psalm 16, and Habakkuk 1. And in, in my imagination, I, can't, I don't know this for sure, but in my imagination, I, I see those as the three Old Testament readings that were offered on the day that Paul went into the Sabbath. So he's hearing the stories. He's, he's reading, reading from the Psalms. He's hearing these stories read, and yet... They didn't understand what they were all about. They didn't understand they were about Jesus, so they saw to his murder. Even so, verse 30, Paul says, but God raised him from the dead. Verse 32, he says, and we bring you good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So this is fascinating. You you look at the Bible as this unfolding drama of redemption. This is actually what Paul is doing. Of course, they don't realize this at that very moment. What Paul is doing is he's answering the questions that God left unanswered way back when in his prophecy to Habakkuk. In fact, he, he, again, he quotes from Habakkuk 1. He's saying that the mystery of this incredible salvation, this renewal, this restoration that, I, that God promised to bring about, he's actually doing it now. He's doing it in front of your very eyes through the person and work of Jesus. And then Paul gets to the climax of his sermon. Look at verses 36 through 41. He says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Here's a reference to Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if someone tells you. Now, I want to make a point. This is not one of my points, but I want to make this point. And it's very important, I think. Just learning to see Jesus in all the scriptures does not save anyone. Having a correct biblical hermeneutic, that is, being able to understand the scriptures with a Christocentric lens, a Christ-centered lens, does not save anyone. Only by turning from our sins and trusting in this same Jesus 
is anyone made right with God. Because, as Paul will make clear in this sermon, Jesus suffered, died, and rose again, not just to make for a good story, not just to be the hero of a book, but to save his people from a death curse. Here's the second point of Paul's sermon, and it's our point as well. Jesus did what neither David nor any other prophet or king could do. He paid the sins, paid for the sins of his people. Paul says that David, he served a purpose in his generation. And we know, if you know the story of David, a terrific king, a great conqueror, a man who struck fear in in his uh, opponents. David served a purpose, but Paul says he fell asleep or he died and he saw corruption. In other words, David's body, you know, David's body, the remains of David's body are still in the same place they were buried. There are, and and I don't know all the the science behind it, but there are certainly microcosmic uh, remains that still exist from David's body. David suffered corruption, and, and so do we all. Our bodies rot and decompose because there is, as R.C. Sproul puts it, an inherent rottenness in them, namely sin. Sin emanates from the core of our beings. It causes us not only to get sick and to eventually die physically. If it's not dealt with, if it's not atoned for, it will result in our final spiritual death. We were created, again going back to this big story, we were created... We were made by God to honor and obey Him. But we have failed miserably to live according to His perfect standard, the law. Which means that because of our failure to do what God has called us to do, we have a moral debt hanging over us. We owe God a sin debt. And it doesn't matter if you're a big sinner or a small sinner in your estimation. It doesn't matter if your sins are the stuff of scandals and public uh, uh, ignominy, or if your sins are the more undetectable type. Greed, judgmentalism, hatred, lust, rage. Our sin debt has earned for us an infinite, eternal punishment in a place called hell. But God knew That if he were to save those he loves, he would have to send his infinite eternal son to this earth so that his son could absorb the eternal wrath of God that we deserve. And this is the point of the whole Bible. The moral debt that we owe, that the law continually reminds us of, Jesus paid. That's what Paul means in verse 39, by everyone who believes is freed from everything that the law could not free us from. The word free is actually the word, and if you have an NIV Bible, it's translated this way, is the word justified, which means if you put your faith in Jesus, you have been justified, you have been declared not guilty by God for all the things you've done. Maybe it was something in the way you sinned against God this morning. Maybe it was last night. and Maybe it was a week ago. Maybe there's, there's a number of things in your past and you're thinking, can God forgive me of those? If you put your faith in Christ, you have been freed from condemnation, free from the judgment of the law. You have been freed. You have been declared not guilty by God. In other words, when God sees you, 
He sees you as a perfect son or daughter, as one who has never sinned. I mean, think about that. If you're in Christ, God sees you as someone who has never sinned. You are justified in His sight. He's not keeping score with you. He's not up and down in the way that He feels about you. He loves you. You you are forgiven. You belong to Him. But Paul makes it clear in this sermon that forgiveness must be received by faith. Don't be like the scoffers, he says in verse 41, who have rejected Jesus. This Jesus, whom Paul has already referred to as Savior, Holy One, and the Son, must be trusted. We don't see this in the English language, but there's a change, or I guess we probably do in the translation. There's a change in pronouns um, in verse 33 and 34, from us to you. This forgiveness that Jesus earned, Paul says, is for us who believe. But then he goes on to say, it can be for you too if you receive Christ. Through this man, Paul says in verse 38, everyone who believes, everyone is freed. The salvation is for anyone, not just the Jews, but for people from every race and ethnicity. Not just the rich, but the poor. Not those who just quote, grew up right, but especially for those who have wandered off, rebelled against God, done things they're ashamed of, fallen through the cracks. Everyone who believes is freed, which means everyone who believes is declared righteous and not guilty before God. If you trusted in Jesus, the law no longer condemns you. You don't have to live flawlessly to be accepted by God. You're already accepted, completely and forever accepted by God in Christ. You don't have to live your life uh, in a certain way, perfectly obedient, in order to get God's love. You're already loved by God in Christ. Now, there's one more comforting reality to which Paul points, and this is actually a week later, but look at verses 44 through 52. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And really what made them so mad, what incited their ires, that they were saying that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life by virtue of your rejection of Jesus. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then look at this next phrase. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing And the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So what Paul does here is in in follow-up to these same folks and, and many others who had gathered, is he shocks his audience by declaring the power and the breadth of God's sovereign grace. The Jews' rejection of Jesus will not stop God's mission to save the world 
through him. In fact, verse 48, all who were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been in circles, and maybe this describes you. And if that does, that's okay. I love you. You know, we're still siblings in Christ. But I've been in circles where people would really, really want to, and in fact, reverse the order of that statement that Paul makes in 48. And they would say, as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. But that's not what the text says. That's not what the Scripture says. Luke, the writer of Acts, makes it impossible to deny, grammatically, syntactically, theologically, that before the world was created, there was a time, or before there was a time, before there was even time, I should say, before time was even invented or created, out of His own wisdom and mercy, God determined to save some people, to appoint some people to eternal life, making it both possible and certain that they would believe. One theologian says it this way, the only reason anybody was saved out of that ungodly mass of people who were blaspheming and criticizing the preaching of the Word of God was that God intervened in the heart of His elect and translated them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So here's our final point in keeping with the message of Paul. By His wisdom, for His glory, and through His Spirit, God makes those He has chosen willing and able to repent and believe in His Son. And I know that's a lot. I mean, I understand that's a lot. Both it's wordy and it's a lot theologically. But this is how salvation works. Those who formerly wanted nothing to do with God and in fact were haters of God, unable to seek Him, unable to, quote, choose Him, are brought to saving faith in God's Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see the Trinitarian nature of God's salvation. All three of the persons of the Trinity are active in this, taking those who are spiritually dead, causing them to be born again from above, in the words of John 3, making them alive in Christ, and thereby enabling them to repent and believe. A couple of weeks ago, I said in a sermon, for those that God has in His sights, they don't stand a chance against Him. For those upon whom God has lavished His covenantal affection, they don't stand a chance against Him. And I didn't realize that that would strike a nerve the way that it did. Some people were deeply comforted by that. And they said, you know, it, it brings me great comfort and joy to know that, that if God has set His sights on my husband or my adult son or my adult daughter or my neighbor, that they don't stand a chance against Him. Because God will bring them to saving faith. But for others, it was a little disconcerting. And they had very good questions. In fact, I was asked, are you saying that those that God has chosen cannot resist Him? Are you saying that those that God has chosen will definitely be saved? And my answer was, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's what the Scripture says. Now, of course, there's a beautiful mystery to this. I understand. But we dare not try to explain away or do what some theologians refer to as exegetical gymnastics, bending and contorting and twisting to make the Scriptures say something it doesn't, to make it mean something it doesn't. This passage is so clear. Those who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, we often talk about salvation as the moment that I made my decision. 
or the moment that I made my choice. But the reality is, for those that God has chosen, God has guaranteed their salvation before He even fashioned the world. And at some moment in their lives, He works in such a way by His Holy Spirit to make them alive in Christ and to bring them to a place instantaneously of repentance and faith. So He gets all the glory... And his newborn children are led to joy and confidence. And by the way, this doctrine was never meant to divide. It was never meant to cause problems to be... This doctrine was meant to comfort the believer. To comfort and encourage those of us who are in Christ. God chose us in Christ before he made the world. Before the fight was even announced, the victory was a foregone conclusion. There was never a time in all of history or even before history, when we were not loved and chosen by God. Now, here's why that's so comforting. If God loved me so much that before I was even an apple in my mother's eye, before I was even a thought by my parents, before the time came that I was born, if He loved me so much that He he chose me as His own, He chose to make me his very son or daughter. And at the moment in his infinite wisdom, he enabled me to respond in repentant faith. If he loved me that much, then I can certainly trust him in what I'm going through now, in every situation of life. I don't know, of course, what you're going through necessarily, but maybe it's a conflict at home. Maybe it's, again, it's a, a nagging illness. Maybe it's, it's a diagnosis that you don't know what to make sense of. Uh, Maybe things are not good in your marriage. Maybe financially you're upside down and nobody else knows it, but you don't know how you're going to survive. I don't know what you're going through, but I do know this. If you are in Christ, the fact that God loved you before you were born means that he has good things in store for you. Now, it may not be tomorrow. It may not even be next month. But God is working all things out for your good and His glory. And as Jonathan Edwards said so beautifully back in the early 1700s, and I love this, and I, and I repeat this a lot because it means so much. He said that God's passion for His own glory and His desire for the good of His children, they're never at odds with each other. So in some way that that's, we, we can't fully understand, God is working things out in your life in a way that is for your good, in a way that will bring Him glory. And you can trust that a God who chose you before you were even born, before he spoke the word and made the world, that he has love for you that will never end. And and this is actually, we don't have time to get into it, we're out of time, but this is what motivated and compelled the disciples and the apostles to continue to do ministry. This is precisely what happens at the end of this chapter. Persecution would mount against Paul and Barnabas and the new disciples of Jesus But they were undeterred. They were filled with joy that God would show them such grace and mercy. Because what they realized was, this salvation that I've experienced, it's not because of anything I've done. It's in Christ alone. And if salvation is anchored in Christ alone, then what that means is we're going to sing in just a second, is that no power of hell nor scheme of man And I would add to that, I'm not trying to add to the song, say I'm a better writer, but I would say, not even our own obedience or disobedience 
None of those things can separate us from the love of God, the God who loved us before we were even born. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning for your sovereign grace. And we thank you this morning that for, what, for a reason known only to you, because of your mercy and your goodness and your kindness, you decided to snag us from eternal punishment. To, to as the psalmist says, to, to, to draw us out of the miry clay. To bring us to a place where we could repent and believe by a work of your spirit and for your glory. And we know that if you love us that much, we can trust you even now. We can trust you with what we're going through because of your love for us and because of this salvation, which is not based on merit, it's not based on earning, it's not based on our faithfulness, but on your faithfulness, the one who would save us in and through and by the work of Christ alone. Give us the grace to believe it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.